This week, we are taking you to a seminary ethics class. Oh yeah, I'm sure exactly where you wanted to be right now. Trust me, it'll be fun. Seriously though, here's the thing Meredith and I really appreciated about our seminary ethics class at Fuller. Sometimes ethics gets a bad rap as a heady, intellectual, theoretical sort of exercise about splitting hairs and arguing over irrelevant situations that have nothing to do with real life. But our ethics professor, Glenn Stassen, who I mentioned last week, he taught ethics in an incredibly practical way. For him, the starting point of ethics was the reality of this world, that it is hard and confusing and complicated, and that following Jesus in this real world is possible. That what Jesus taught his followers was not heady, intellectual, theoretical, but practical, everyday practices that lead to life. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. First, though, we are going to read a big chunk of Matthew 5, beginning with verse 17, right after the Beatitudes, so that we can kind of get the broad strokes of this uh, passage that we're going to be looking at today. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those in ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, since it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair on it black or white. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to anyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's quite a passage. One that starts by telling us that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, who were notoriously righteous in the sense of following the law to the letter and often beyond the letter. And then it ends by telling us we need to be perfect, like God. And all through, we see Jesus telling us not to even look lustfully, not to even think angrily, not to use harsh words with each other. It's a hard teaching, one that has been struggled with by those who want to follow Jesus ever since it was given. And often that struggle has ended in people throwing up their hands, saying this is unattainable perfection that Jesus is commanding. So what are we supposed to do? It ends up being put in the nice sentiment category or the wouldn't that ideal be great, too bad it's just unrealistic category. But when it's in those categories, it means it doesn't actually help us know how to handle the difficult, confusing world we live in. And so we look elsewhere for guidance on how to, you know, actually live our lives. Or it might lead some people to try and attain that perfection and then beat themselves up for not attaining it, no matter how hard they try. What happened to that, my yoke is easy and my burden is light thing that Jesus said? Which brings us to Meredith and my seminary ethics class and Glenn Stassen and his book, Kingdom Ethics, which he wrote with David Gushy and which I also mentioned last week. The book is largely taken up with exploring the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, not exploring them as nice sentiments and unattainable ideals, but as actual practical guidance for how to live as a follower of Jesus in the actual world. They were convinced that Jesus's words apply to all of us. And that they are not meant to drive us to apathy or self-hatred or self-righteousness, but instead to show us the way we might follow that leads to life, where we live as a part of the kingdom of God. I said this at some point on a backdrop, I think, but I'm going to repeat myself here. The kingdom of God is what happens when a group of people live as if God were in fact king, meaning God's in charge. God gets God's way. God's way is followed but not in an authoritarian, do this or else sort of way. Instead, when people willingly align themselves with God's ways, God's goodness, God's justice, and in so doing, bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That, Glenn Stassen taught us in our ethics class, is what these words from Jesus are all about. What are those ways we should walk in? What are the practices we can engage in here, now, in our actual lives, in all their difficulty and confusion, the actual practices that bring God's kingdom and God's life and joy and goodness and justice into our own actual lives and into the actual situations that we live in? And to see that, Stassen said, we need to change the way we read this chapter in Matthew. Most of the time, people have read this as being what are often called antitheses, two-part sayings. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, not even to have lustful thoughts. You have heard it said, keep your oaths, but I say to you, don't even make oaths. 
two parts. The old way, from the law and the Old Testament, or sometimes tradition that has built up around the law, and then a new, stricter, more righteous way, followed by some examples or illustrations that Jesus adds to make his point. But Stassen and Gushy think these sayings aren't actually two-part sayings, but three parts instead, and that this is really important for our understanding of what Jesus is actually doing here. The first of the three parts that they see is what they call traditional righteousness. Here's what the law says. So in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not kill and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. It's from the 10 commandments. So far, so good. Then the second of the three parts is where Gushi and Stassen start reading things differently. So in this example, Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you that everyone being angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to Gehenna, sometimes translated hell. I'll have more to say about that word on a backdrop episode coming up. For now, though, let me just quote Stassen and Gushi. Jesus' teaching here is interpreted as a command not to be angry and not to call anyone a fool. But since we cannot avoid being angry, if we're truthful about ourselves, Jesus must not have actually meant what he seems to have said. So it's a hard teaching, a high ideal, an impossible demand. This is a misinterpretation, they say. Jesus, in fact, gives no command not to be angry or not to call anyone a fool. In Greek, being angry is not a command, but a participle, an ongoing action. It is the diagnosis, they say, of a vicious cycle that we often get stuck in, being angry, insulting one another. It's simply realistic. We do get angry. We do insult one another, and it does lead to trouble. Stassen and Gushi see in this second part of each of these teachings, not a command from Jesus to attain perfection, but instead an accurate diagnosis of what uh, they call vicious cycles that we inevitably fall into. And this is important. We can fall into those vicious cycles even when we are following the letter of the law, the traditional righteousness from part one. So again, to use the second teaching, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's part one, traditional righteousness. But then, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is part two, the vicious cycle that can so easily lead us down destructive paths. We look with the purpose of lusting, but never actually, you know, do anything. So we fulfilled the letter of the law while still being in a place that doesn't lead to life that isn't reflective of God's kingdom. We haven't sinned, but we sure aren't in the place we would want to be either. Jesus is not disagreeing with the traditional righteousness in most cases. After all, many of these examples come straight out of the Old Testament, even the Ten Commandments. And like he just said, he didn't come to abolish even the tiniest bit of the law, but rather to fulfill it. Instead, he's saying that even if we follow the law to the letter, Even if we fulfill the traditional righteousness perfectly, we still might not be living a kingdom-oriented life because we still might be caught up in vicious cycles that lead to division and hurt and brokenness. This is the righteousness of the Pharisees, to follow the law to the letter and beyond and think that's all there is to the path to life. But this is the righteousness that we must surpass, Jesus says, if we want to experience the life God is offering in the kingdom of God. 
And so to that end, Jesus goes on in each example to provide, in Stassen and Gushy's view of it, positive ways to live, what they call transforming initiatives. This is the third part of each of these teachings, practical ways to live into the kingdom. The climax of each of these teachings is not the prohibitions, the do's and don'ts, but instead the climax is the practical ways of living that Jesus recommends for God's followers. In our first example, from verse 23 and on, it says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come to offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser, and so on. This is where the commands are in this passage. Not in the do's and don'ts, but on the actions of reconciliation that can transform us out of people caught in a vicious cycle and into people who are living the life of the kingdom of God. In the second example, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Now, it's important for us to note here that in both of these cases, Jesus is engaging in some intentional, almost comical exaggeration to make his point. The clue that that's what he is doing is in the first situation, where someone is in the temple with a live animal ready to sacrifice it, and is told to leave the animal at the altar and go find the person they need to be reconciled with first and then come back and offer up the sacrifice. You know, seems reasonable, right? Well, the temple was at least a three-day journey from Galilee, which is where this teaching is taking place. So if we were to take Jesus literally here, he was telling people to leave a live animal right in front of the altar in the temple courts for a full week while they make the round trip of reconciliation. Obviously, this would be kind of a ridiculous piece of advice. But Jesus isn't just talking about what to do in one situation. He's using comic exaggeration to make a point about the way his followers ought to operate in any situation. They should be people who are proactive about reconciliation. They should be making over-the-top efforts all the time to bring peace where there's discord, reconciliation where there's division, and friends where there are enemies. Similarly, Jesus isn't literally saying to pluck an eye out or cut a hand off, although those were common punishments for the type of offenses that this vicious cycle of unchecked lust might lead to. He is saying to his followers that they should go to over-the-top lengths to remove temptations from their lives, temptations that might lead them down a vicious cycle. And not just in the area of lust, but greed, pride, bitterness, anything contrary to the life of the kingdom. Back to Gushy and Stassen. This means the emphasis in these teachings is not on negative prohibitions that are hard teachings. The emphasis is on positive transforming initiatives that are the way of deliverance based in grace. Whenever we find ourselves in a relationship of anger or insult, we are to engage in the regular practice of talking it over and seeking to make peace. That is doing conflict resolution. And so throughout the sermon, they say, Jesus is giving us regular practices that participate in God's gracious deliverance from the vicious cycles in which we get stuck. Throughout the sermon, just to say it again, Jesus is giving us regular practices that participate in God's way of gracious deliverance from the vicious cycles in which we get stuck. The reason this is so important, I think, is that it illuminates for us what it means for our righteousness to surpass that of the Pharisees. It's not that we do a better job of doing good things and avoiding bad things than the Pharisees. 
These are people who were the best at doing things exactly according to the law. In fact, it's not even about us being held to an even higher standard of what is good and bad than the Pharisees. They already held themselves to a pretty high standard. Jesus tells us later in this gospel that the Pharisees had rules about how much of each herb they should tithe on and exactly which things were and weren't allowed on the Sabbath. They were the kings of asking, is this allowed? Can I, can I do this? Is this good or bad? But what Jesus is saying here is that that type of righteousness, a righteousness that is based on asking the questions, is this allowed? Can I do this? Is this good? Is this bad? That's almost completely missing the point. Following to the letter, what is allowed or not allowed, doesn't lead to life. It is not a road that leads to the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is not defined by strictly following good and avoiding what's bad. That's righteousness as the Pharisees understood it. Again, it's good to do good things and avoid doing bad things, but that doesn't by itself mean that we are being a part of the kingdom. Those who follow Jesus and join the kingdom that he announced are invited into a whole different righteousness paradigm, proactively engaging in kingdom living in our day-to-day lives, being peacemakers, loving our enemies and making them into friends, living generously and sacrificially, engaging with and resisting injustice, extending grace and mercy to those whom we come into contact with. We don't have the time right here to go into detail in each of these examples from this chapter, but as Gushi and Stassen say, each of these things are regular practices that participate in God's way of gracious deliverance from the vicious cycles in which we get stuck. These are ways of living that lead us towards the kingdom, not checklists of right and wrong. And there's one more thing to emphasize here. These aren't arbitrary attributes or practices either. These are the ways that God engages with us. These are things that embody God's character. So by practicing them, we put ourselves on the path that leads to God and to the life of God's kingdom. We are imitating God. And in so doing, showing the world around us what God is like. And practicing is a good word to use here because these things do not come naturally. Instead, these are ways of living that we practice. And to once again, quote Stassen and Gushy, as we engage in them, we learn better and better ways to practice. We learn by doing. These are not high ideals to be admired from a distance, but actual practices. Practices that put us on a road to becoming more and more like God in our character and in our ways of engaging with the world around us. A road that leads us to be perfect as God is perfect. We don't just become perfect all of a sudden. We gradually practice living in the practical, God-like ways of Jesus and find that that transforms us, transforms our relationships, transforms the world around us bit by bit. The kingdom is not Santa's naughty or nice list. It isn't about checking off the right boxes, believing the right things, saying the right things, avoiding bad things. The kingdom is about seeing who our God is, our joyful, peacemaking, justice-bringing, life-giving, good God, and living into that reality now in our regular lives. That is how we enter the kingdom of God here and now.